So we learn a great deal about tefillah from Chana, the mother of Shmuel, when she was davening for a child. We learn to daven quietly from her. We learn about how you must act in the presence of someone else who's praying from the way that Eli treated her. And the Torah chooses, you know, Hashem chose to teach us through Chana something about prayer that people didn't know. The greatest people until the times of Chana weren't able to teach us by their lives that we need to pray quietly. Or all these halachas. The question is, what is so important about that experience? That's what I want to sort of start out talking about a little bit about Chana. And that way we can hopefully open up some new insight into tefillah, into prayer that will be very helpful for us. You see, since this is an ongoing share, I obviously wouldn't want to try to jump in and talk about any of those specific topics. So something more general on the topic I think is appropriate. Also, as we're going to see, um, we learn as well that tefillos, avos tiknum, our, our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Avraham started praying shacharis, Yitzchak prayed for mincha, and Yaakov prayed in the evening. Um, obviously, the text that we have is not from them. The text is from the Anshe Knesset Hagadola. Um, I mean, you wouldn't pray to rebuild Jerusalem before you were given Jerusalem. Um, but, on the other hand, Avraham did pray in the same way that we do. His life circumstances were different, and the stage of the Jewish people was a very different stage than it is now. But nevertheless, we are connecting into Avraham, Mitzvah, and Yaakov through each of our prayers. We're behaving as they did, and so therefore, you know, it's going to fit very nicely, but perhaps if we have a little time to connect it as well to this week's Parsha, this week we read about Akedas Yitzchak, Avraham and Yitzchak, and then soon we're going to be reading about Yaakov and Esav. So uh, that's where we're going to be going today. Yeah. Did each one add a second prayer, or did each one only, Avraham prayed once, Yitzchak prayed only once a day, or he added... That's right, he added, they, they each added one on. In other words, the words are Avraham Tikain Tfilah Shachras. Avraham established that prayer. So he didn't just pray it, but rather he made that a rule for his family and his descendants. Now we're going to behave this way. I mean, each one added another one. Okay. So I want to just read a, an interesting account. The Gemara describes Chana's talk with Hashem in her prayer. So, there's a couple things that she said. First, she says to Hashem, she says, you made nothing in the world for no reason. You made nothing for no reason. Everything has a reason. So why did you give me the ability to nurse children and then you didn't give me a child? Good question. Good morning. It's kind of a funny thing. I mean, that's that that was her big claim. I have the ability to nurse children. You know, it's like an interesting thing. Like, where is that? What's the message there? Okay. She then said. Hashem, you're the king of hosts. Until the time of Chana, nobody referred to Hashem as Tzivaot. 
you know, we talk about Hashem Tzivakos, Tzivakot. Nobody ever referred to Hashem with those words, the Gemara says, until Chana did. It means the Lord of multitudes, of hosts. She said a little poor guy shows up outside a massive party for tens of thousands of people the king is throwing. And no expense was spared. And one poor man shows up at the door and he says, can I have one slice of bread? He says, after all this party that you made, you can't give me one little slice of bread. There are a billion people living in China. Yeah? A billion of them. I mean, how much are they contributing as compared to a woman like Khan? Every one of them manages to go have some kids. Can I have one child? You have such a big world. There's so much that you built. You can't give me one little child. Okay. Then she said, I would like Zera Amashim. I would like human offspring. Zera is like, you know, seeds. Literally, they're like seeds that you plant in a field. And usually, uh, Zera means children in the Torah. So he says, I would like Zera Anashim. Human child. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you do not expect a tortoise to come out in the delivery room. Right? Uh, a dog, a cat. What, what did she think was going to come out that she had to emphasize Anashim? So the Gemara says, what kind of talk is that, Anashim? So it says, rather, Rabbanon <coughs> Amri, the rabbis taught, Lo'aruch velogutz, not too long and not too short. I don't want someone exceptionally tall or exceptionally short. Not too tall, not too big and not too small. Not too smart and not too stupid. Zara Anashim means she begged Hashem for an average child. She didn't want a brilliant child and she didn't want a dumb child. She wanted an average child. And that's really interesting. Why wouldn't you want a brilliant child? The smarter they are. I mean, they can be skipping grades and they can be um, finishing university at 12 years old. There's a little boy in Berkeley who's 12 years old and he's a junior. He just started his first semester at Berkeley, but with community college credits, he's at the level of a junior. And he's going so quickly that in the next year and a half, he's going to graduate. Um, he's 12 years old. Hana did not want such a child. What's the message? I mean, why not? Like, what's the big deal? What does she even care if he is... I mean, if she doesn't care that he'd be smart, that's fine. But it sounds like she doesn't want him to be smart. And that's interesting. Why is she trying to avoid that? Okay, so that's what it says in the Gemara. It also says another opinion of what it means, Zera Anashim. Uh, human child, it means a child who is like Anashim, is like great men. And then the Gemara quotes the verse, Moshe ve'aharon b'chohanav v'shmuel b'korei shemo. That Moshe and Aaron were priests of Hashem and Shmuel was of those who called out Hashem's name. That Shmuel was equal to both Moshe and Aaron combined. Mm. So Shmuel, in his own way, was greater than either Moshe or Aaron. If you'd combine them on a scale, you'd have Moshe and Aaron together and Shmuel on the other side in his own way. Now Moshe was the greatest prophet, 
and Aaron was the greatest bringer of peace into the Jewish people, and Shmuel was something else. He was a leader, you know, we'll find out what his nekuda was. But when Hannah was praying for him, we've focused here so far on, on three things that she said when she was praying. She said, you know, I have the ability and the facilities to nurse a child, so why would you have created me with that if you didn't want to give me a child? She said, as well, she said, you built so much in your world. Hashem Tzivakot, there's so much here. Is it that hard for you to just give me one little kid? And then she went and asked for an average child specifically. And the Torah says, the Navi says, that she was granted her request. And when Shmuel made a mistake later, when he was a little boy, Eli, the high priest, was looking for a Kohen to shecht an animal, to slaughter an animal. And Shmuel said to him, he said, it doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that you need a Kohen to shecht an animal, even for the sacrifices. The Kohen offers the animal, but the actual sacrificing is kosher for any Jew to do. Shechita is sheira bazar. It's kosher for, literally, it means a stranger. In other words, one who's not a Kohen. So what do you need a Kohen for? And Ailey said, you know, the way that you spoke, out of turn, a little child speaking to the high priest like that, is something that a person could die for. Yeah, when people used to disrespect the king, there was actually a death penalty. It's called Mored B'Malchus. There's a mitzvah on the Jewish people to give themselves a king. And part of that mitzvah, part of that mitzvah is that the king, for example, there's a halacha that a parent may forgive their child any honor. So a parent can say, I don't mind if you sit in my chair. I don't mind if you call me by my first name. If a parent really says that and they don't mind, then the child may do that. Av, or a mother, a father, a mother, Shem Machal Al Kvodo, who is Mochel, he says, I forgive my honor, I don't, I'm not worried about my honor. Kvodo Machul. The Svarim recommend that even if your child doesn't know, because you may want to train your children too, it is still a helpful for your kids olam haba if you forgive them in advance for anything they do to you. It is very challenging to properly live up to honoring your parents as you really should. A person who says, I fully and wholeheartedly forgive, there is still a level of sin when a person says, I'd like to eat treif, and then accidentally they eat the kosher meat. When a child is trying to, is, thinks he's disrespecting his parents and doesn't know they forgave it, it is also a sin, but it's nowhere near the same level. And so the early Svarim recommend, yeah, from uh, you know, seven, eight hundred years ago, that a person forgives their children in advance. And says, listen, if they ever make a mistake or they slip up or that, you know, I'm not, uh, I forgive them. And that works. But a melech, a king, he doesn't have the right. He's not allowed to say, I don't mind if you insult me. Even if the king tells you, I don't mind, you can treat me like your buddy. If somebody does, they're in terrible trouble. It's a terrible sin. They might even be put to death if they do something serious enough. Why not? The Mepharshim wonder, why can't a king say, I forgive you, I don't mind? After all, if the point is to respect a king, then if a person says, I'm not worried about that, he should be allowed to. A Rebbe may do that for his students, a parent may do that for his children, but a king cannot. 
And the Svarim explained that the, the one of the 613 commandments is that the Jewish people must have a king. When they're living in their land, in the right situation, they must have a king. If the king says, you don't have to treat me like a king, he's violating that mitzvah. Just as everyone else needs to respect a king, he needs to behave like a king and demand respect. And so we have to know in our own lives, sometimes you have somebody who treats you in a way that perhaps you don't deserve. They look up to you more than they should. They expect you to be in a certain role. Sometimes when you know that the other person needs someone in that role, you have to live up to it. You have to accept the respect. You have to say, yes, I am that good, if that person really needs that. I will help you. I can take care of you. Now, it can often be an arrogant thing to tell someone, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. But there are people in your life who need to hear that from you. And therefore, you have to live up to that. You can't just say, well, be very humble. I don't really know. Believe maybe I can try to help you. No. You have my word. It will be fine because I'll take care of you. Sometimes, when you have to act like a king, um, you can't forgive that because the other person needs it. And so the king is not allowed. Everybody in the Jewish people needs a king. Well, a Kohen Gadol is not quite a king. And yet Eli felt that it was necessary for him to stand up. And he said, Chana, I would like to pray to God that your child be killed. Because I believe that he spoke out of turn to such an extent that that's what's necessary. And Chana begged him. She said, but I daven so hard for this child. You can't take him away. He said, I promise you. I know, Chana, that your only concern was to bring someone to the world that Hashem would be proud of. And I think that this child, now it's time for him to go. But I promise that I'll pray for you. I promise that I'll pray for you. Yeah, that you will have a child who is much greater than this one and will bring more glory to Hashem. She said, but I don't want one greater. I didn't want a brilliant child. I wanted an average child. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, you're right. And he let him go. That's the story. Now, the first thing that's so remarkable is to realize that just as with Avraham Avinu, who was the first one to establish real prayer, he was the one who was prepared to just let go of his child. It doesn't mean it wasn't painful, but it means that if he was 100% convinced that what would bring the most kavod to Hashem and be the greatest mitzvah and make the world a holier and better place would be to let their child go, then they were prepared to do that. And every one of our ancestors did that. The countries in Europe and, 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 and you know, North Africa are, are soaked in the blood of our ancestors who were prepared to stay inside of the shul when the crusaders came and said, anybody who comes out may send their children out to go live in the monastery or anybody can come out if they'd like to convert to Christianity, or else we're going to burn down the shul with all of you inside. And the Jewish people sat there and hugged their children and wouldn't let them out of the shul. That at the end of the day, we are from stock of people who were ready to give up everything if we were convinced that Hashem's plan for this life was to cut it a drop short. You don't, we don't worry so much about this life anyway. We're worried about eternity. And Chana too was prepared this was an intelligent conversation. Ailey made a claim to her and said, the best thing for the covet of Hashem is for this child to end his life now. And Chana made an argument and said, no, I wouldn't want a better child who's smarter. I want this child. This is what I asked for. 
So we have to understand this. But before we ex- go back and explain the Chana story <coughs> in a way that will clear this all up, I'll show you a cryptic Gemara over here. Also in Brachos, a lot of the halachas of Davin here in Masech the Brachos. Talks about first reading the Shema and then all the prayers, all the blessings we say. So it says, Rabbi Yochanan taught in the name of Rabbi Yossi, from where do we know, where can we prove in the Torah or in the prophets that Hashem prays? God prays. Which is a totally eye-opening thing. People ask all kinds of uh, questions about prayer. They say, why should I always pray the same words every day? That's troubling to people. If God already knows what's going to happen, why should I pray? Or they say maybe a little different way of saying that is, Hashem knows what's best for me, doesn't he? So what does it matter what I ask for? After all, the purpose, I mean, I don't want to ask for the wrong thing. I don't, so why would I bother praying? God knows exactly what I need and what I'm supposed to get. But when I tell you that God prays, Hashem prays, as the verse says in Yeshaya, that's a famous song from the Miami Boys Choir. That people, uh, that's a beautiful song. Bahaviyosim el har kodshi, I will bring them to my holy mountain. Vesimachtim beveist vilasi, and I will bring them joy in the house of my prayer. So it ought to have said the Gemara Tefillah Sam. Lonemar, it doesn't say the house of their prayer, but rather the house of my prayer. The base of Mikdash is the place where Hashem prays. My Mitzali, what does he pray? What does Hashem say? Exactly. We'll ask that in a second, but first let's find out what he says, because maybe in those words you can hear a little bit. Yehiratzon milfanai, may it be my will before me. Sheyichbeshu rachamai es ka'asai. Rachami es ka'asai, that my... Mercy, conquer my anger, and that my rachamim, my mercy, will control or, or roll over and control all of my midos, so that I may behave with my children mercifully and beyond the letter of the law. Tanya is taught in a bride. So the very next Gemara says, Yishmol ben Elisha, who was the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, told, Pam Achas, once, Nichnasti, Lahakir Ketores, Lifnai Vilifnim. I went in on Yom Kippur to offer the Ketores in the temple, the incense, in the Holy of Holies. So once a year, you can go in the Holy of Holies, the holiest man in the holiest place on the holiest day. Other than that, a person dies if they go in. And if the Kohen Gadol went in and wasn't righteous, he would die. So they used to tie a rope around his waist because no one would be able to get the body out. So every year they had a rope around the waist of the Kohen Gadol so that if he would die, they could pull him out. This was a very big thing. Wouldn't you like to know what goes on? What is he doing there? What's he thinking? What's Hashem telling him? So he, he taught all the Jewish people. This is a Gemara. He says, Pam Achas, once I went in, I saw Hashem with his angel sitting on the holiest of thrones, and he said to me, Yishmoel Bini Barcheni. Yishmoel, my son, bless me. Amartilo. So I said to him, Yehiratzon, Milfanecha, may it be your will before you, that your mercy 
conquers your anger. In other words, he says over the same prayer that we just learned that God says, except he turned it towards Hashem. The Gemara says this, this Gemara teaches you the power of anyone's blessing. If Hashem can ask a blessing from a human being and value that, then we should value a blessing from anyone. The distance between Hashem and the greatest human being is far greater than the distance between the best human being and the worst human being. And so even the weakest human being offers a, offers a blessing, don't take that lightly, the Gemara says. Okay. Hashem is praying, and the Rashba, who was one of the early Rishonim, one of the medieval commentaries in the, in the 1300s, you know, so he, he wants to know He's troubled. He says, why does Hashem pray? Who's he praying to? What is it that he can't do? He says it means as follows. Hashem gave up some control when he built human beings. He gave up the control over free will. He said, I give you a choice to do good or evil. Hashem's deepest desire, and of course we speak about these things sort of allegorically. It's hard to talk about Hashem like this. But the Svarim are clear, and the Gemara teaches. Hashem's deepest desire is that we all do His will. He wants us to choose good. If He chooses it for us, it doesn't really help much. Just like when you have a little child. If you force them to pray, and you force them to learn Torah, that doesn't really help much. What you want to do is create an environment where they can choose to do so. And that's what Hashem wants to do for us too. He wants us to make the choice. You can only love something that you choose. Okay. So when Hashem prays, the Rashba explains, and Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa elaborates on this. It means Hashem let go of that ability. He's begging us. In the world, as Hashem built it, there is message after message to us. Live a good life. Do good things. Follow Hashem's will. That's what Hashem prays. It's a sign. Prayer means this is Hashem's deepest will. And it's what He projects to the world. That's what it means. So if we turn that around, then it would mean when a person prays, it is a person expressing what their deepest will is and projecting that outward towards Hashem. That's what it would mean. That's what prayer would mean. So that's true. It answers a lot of questions. It answers a lot of questions. Why does one have to pray when they're not inspired? People often say, I pray when I'm in the mood. Whenever I'm inspired, I pray. I can't pray every day. The answer is that you cannot, I'll tell you as an example, I have a rabbi in Israel, he's only a couple years older than me, and, and the one thing I learned from him most valuable is when he once told me that the best experiences of his life are when he comes to yeshiva and learns Torah for a full day when he's very sick when he's exhausted and he has headaches and he's coughing and he can barely make it he said, it's easy for me to learn when I'm in a great mood and I'm happy and the air conditioner works. I've never felt closer to Hashem than when it was really hard and I made it through the day. What really builds a relationship 
and cements one's values is when a person learns to be able to sacrifice out of commitment to those values. If you are capable, even when you're not inspired of praying, that is a more powerful prayer. It's no big trick to be really religious when you're inspired. That's easy. But it's hard to do it when you leave. When you leave the shul or the shir, or you're at it and it's just not inspirational and you don't always feel it. And anybody who tells you that they always feel it is lying. Because Hashem didn't build people that way. And in fact, the Gemara says the greater a person is, the greater their Yetzirah is. Which means that if you know of someone very great, the way they became that was by praying when they weren't inspired and by studying Torah when it was tough and they couldn't feel it. And then they had a nagging doubt whether or not this was exactly going to work anyway. They said, you know, Hashem, I don't always feel like you're listening to me. And they pray anyway. Wait, Esther, you know, she says in the Tehillim, Keli, Keli, Lama Azatani, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, you know, she's talking to Hashem. So she's talking directly to Hashem as she says that. And so that is the ultimate, listen, Hashem, I feel like, and, and the Gemara says, she felt that her Ruach HaKodesh had been taken away. And she just felt a distance from Hashem. Who is this? This is Queen Esther. She says, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's exactly it. You see, the greatest connection that you can have, the deepest connection is one that transcends being in the mood and is about commitment. A deep commitment which is such that no matter how hard things are right now, I still will say, I love you. A person who only tells their spouse, I love you, when they're really feeling it, and when they're in a rotten mood, they just won't even say that, has a very hard time. It's a very hard thing person doesn't know. But when a person can relate to their loved one with the same calm, loving attitude, even when they're fuming inside, that's a person who will never feel closer to that spouse than after that experience. Because why else would you do that if not for the fact that your love runs so deep? And your commitment is so strong that you won't even allow your emotions to get the better of you. If prayer is about figuring out what we're living for and the deepest desires that we have in projecting that, then we have to realize we need a lot of guidance in figuring out what we really want. When a kid, you know, sits there in the yeshiva and says, Rabbi, I don't believe in God. Usually what he's asking you is something along the lines of, Rabbi, why is my mother an alcoholic? Why didn't I have a good childhood? Why did I have this or that bad experience? What am I? He's struggling with something entirely different than what his question really is. Most of the time, our motivations are so complex that we don't even know what we want. First, I'll tell you, what do you want? I had a, a teacher call me this week, um, a teacher in Jerusalem, and she called me up. She was trying to prepare a class on a topic to give to some secular people, and she just wasn't getting anywhere. So I said to her, what's your goal? Like, what do you want when they walk out of the room? And over the next 20 minutes, you know, she refined it like six or seven times. Now, she's a great teacher, and she knows what she's doing. 
But our motivations are so complex that first, you know, first you say, well, I really want to teach the people that the Torah is very deep and meaningful. I want to teach that lesson. And I'll do that through teaching a class on whatever topic. But that's the lesson that I want them to walk out with. But then later she kind of realized that there was something else that she wanted to teach even more than that. And that's, that would be a nice thing. The motivations of what she's doing with her life and her teaching. And not always 100% clear to people. But when you have a Torah that teaches you to pray, and then in the prayer it says you need to focus on Jerusalem. You need to focus on wisdom. You need to focus on remembering that God is the one who blesses your year with sustenance and parnasa. It's Hashem who decided that your financial books would look exactly as they do. We say that, Mivarech Hashanim, you bless the years. Give us rain so we can live. Geshamim, the Gemara says, Hainu Parnasa. Gashmios, which means physical things, is from the root Geshem, which means rain. Physical sustenance is represented in rain. That's what allows everything to grow. That is life. Geshamim, Hainu Parnasa. Whenever we talk about praying for rain, we're talking about praying for a livelihood. And so... All of these things that are in our prayers <coughs> are so fundamental to the outlook that we're expected to develop and have. And a man needs to do that three times a day. A woman is only expected to do it once a day, and she could even do it in her own words if she needed to. Of course, a person who feels, I don't really know the words, should probably say the Shema But men absolutely need that kind of direction. They need to be told what to say. And they need to be told when to say it. And you know what? The real truth is, these are exactly the things that you want. Okay. Now, what we're going to discover is that the humility to accept that Hashem is truly running the show is the deepest level of tefillah. It's not that we're asking for something because we think Hashem doesn't know it. But rather we're asking for something because our deepest need is to turn to Hashem and allow Him to do things for us. And allow us to be, like we say on Yom Kippur, like clay in the, you know, the, the pot maker's hands. That, you know, you have a person who's, who's uh, living this life and the deepest need that we have in serving Hashem is to become a great part. Now, Chana decided that I want to be a part of this massive world, too. You have so much coming out of this world. Why can't I also have a piece of that? I also want a child. You have thousands and millions of people. There's so much food. There's so, can't you give me a little bit that I can use? Isn't there something that I can mold into a great man? But the deepest level of understanding is that every person is an equal part. There is no person who's more or less important. So you have a person who's much more intelligent, and he's a much better Torah scholar, but he's no more important than the person down the block who Hashem gave a different job to. The verse in Mishle says, Loeg Lerash, a person who makes fun of a poor person, Cheref Osehu, he humiliates or blasphemes the one who made him, the one who made that poor person. And the Vilna Gaon says it means a person who looks down on somebody who can't learn Torah as well as he can, doesn't realize that Hashem made people with different roles. 
Some people should study Torah, and some people just can't. There are people who are just not bright enough, and they were put in the world maybe to sweep the streets. But Hashem gave them a job too. There are people that they love and smile at, and they also daven to Hashem, and they also put on their talis and their tzitzis and their tefillin, and they're making a difference too. You know better. You're no better than that other person. Now, the only thing that is true is that if you fulfill your potential, you're as great as anyone that ever lived. Moshe and Aaron were very great. Shmuel was average, but he filled his potential. He became a leader, not with the brilliance of a Moshe, and not with the charisma and the love of Aaron, but with Shmuel. He had his own abilities. By maximizing those abilities, everything changed. Are you saying he actually wasn't brilliant? Right. Was? The Gemara says that he wasn't brilliant. She because begged for a child who was not overly bright. I know that that's what she asked for, but I didn't know what she had received. Right. It says Hashem granted her request. And then it says that he offered her a child who would be more gifted than this first one. And she said, no. El balalti. But I asked for this sort of child. I don't want anything more gifted. If he wasn't gifted, then why did he know the nuances of uh, shechting better than all your Fascinating. It's a fascinating thing. Yeah. It doesn't see. It seems that it's not that he knew it better than Ailey knew that too. But there was a reason that Ailey wanted a kohen, and it was the way that he spoke out that was out of turn. Um, but you're right. It's a, it's it's an interesting question. You do see an intelligence in Shmuel at a young age. But nevertheless, we see that it was not above average. He was just average. It wasn't his intelligence that's what set him apart. And the truth is there are many great, great rabbis, great gedolim, who were absolutely not intelligent in their youth. Listen, they became wise. They became learned because they worked hard. But they were never super brilliant. The Nitziv. These are people that there are famous stories about them, that in their youth they weren't particularly bright. They didn't stand out in the yeshiva. In fact, the Natsiv has a famous story that he told about himself where, he, where his parents wanted to take him out of yeshiva because he wasn't getting anything done. And they wanted to apprentice him as a shoemaker. And he was excited about that. But then he heard from behind the door, he heard his mother sobbing uncontrollably that her son wouldn't be learning Torah anymore. And that hit him so strongly that he barged into his parents' room when he heard this and said, please just give me one more chance. I promise you I won't ruin it. And he went in and he came out and, and he only told this story when he published his first work called the Hanak Shaila, which means the, you know, the, uh, the depths of the question. Go deep and ask, you know. So he published his work and he made a big party. And he said, you know, he said, when I would have died and gone to heaven, I would have been a good shoemaker, and I would have davened every day. And I would have learned Torah every day, said some Tehillim. He says, I would have come up not knowing very much in Torah. And they would have said, so why didn't you write the seminal work, Hamak Shiloh? Where's your Hamak Shiloh? And he said, what kind of a question is that? I was sure you have the wrong guy. I was sure I could barely read the words of the Tehillim, let alone translate them. And he said, I wasn't a very bright kid but I worked hard and achieved great things. So there were many great rabbis in our history who didn't start out brilliant. The Medrash talks about Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol, 
who started out to be very simple. And he couldn't follow. They would teach him halachas every day, and he'd forget them every day. He'd go back to one of the same two halachas every day and would forget them by the next day, no matter how much he reviewed. But at a certain point, he broke through and started to really teach great Torah. But it wasn't because he was more intelligent. Maybe it took him longer to remember things than other people. But the truth is, we're not all in this world to do the same job. So Shechana says, Hashem, you built so much in the world. You made nothing for no reason. An average person, I can see that that person's not there for no reason. It's not as though everybody must become a learned scholar or else there's no room for them in this world. You know, unfortunately, you sometimes have parents, you know the famous joke that Dr. and Mrs. Cohn would like to gladly announce the birth of their son, Dr. Cohn. <laughs> you know, that's uh, already from the time that a child is conceived and born. There are parents who have decided the path of that child. Um, and I believe, I think I saw it in the Shlaw, something along these lines, but I believe that that's the interpretation of the verse. It says, the hands of merciful women consumed their own children. It says that in Eicha. I believe that that's what it means. It doesn't literally mean that people were eating their children, as the Shlaw already talks about. He says, understands it allegorically. I believe it means that a person who brings a child into the world on the deepest level, they're feeling this is for my own glory. I want to have a son who's a doctor. And I want to have a daughter who looks like this and dresses that way. And when their child is getting dressed in the morning and they're three years old and they won't let the child wear what they want to because it doesn't perfectly match, and what will people think about me? That's a little bit of when it could start. That can turn into something very dangerous. It's okay. A person can know their children reflect on them. But when suddenly a child's desires, as they grow older and older, they're 15, 16, and the child is an artist, but it's clear they're going to law school. You were going to go to law school, and that's the end of the conversation. That's a very, very dangerous way to, live, to raise children. And it's unfortunate, people that are hoping that their child will be, you know, I heard this over Shlomo Kaolach, I heard once tell a story of a Rosh Hashiva who he spoke with who was a great man who said, until my child is old enough to talk to me about the Rambam, I have just nothing in common with my son. So in other words, he'll tolerate his son until he becomes someone who can talk about a Rambam. Um, that's really a, a sad thing. Um, because who says the child ever wants to talk? Maybe I shouldn't put him in this world to do that. The way to raise a child, says Chana, is to beg Hashem for someone average. She could say, I see no reason that I should beg for someone brilliant. I'm totally happy with an average child. He can do just as great things. And it says in the Chumash that Korach, when he fought with Moshe, Rashi teaches, he saw that Shmuel would one day come from him. And so that's why Korach fought with Moshe. And the, the students of the Arizal say that on some level, Korach was corrected by his descendant, Shmuel. The mistakes that Korach made, in fact, I found that the Talmud Yerushalmi says that after Korach sinned, he fell into like the, that pit of hell. And he was sinking into Gehenna deeper and deeper every day until Chana came and prayed. It didn't even take Shmuel being born. When Chana prayed, he stopped sinking and started to rise. In other words, the message of Korach was we're all equal. Moshe's no better than you and me. We're all the same. And that was terribly misapplied. We still need leaders and we need followers. It doesn't mean we don't need a leader just because the followers can be just as great as the leader. We all have different roles. The role of the Jewish woman 
historically, was a very different role than the lad of a Jewish man. And yet, I believe that of all cultures in the world, the Jewish mother was the most cherished and respected. She was the head of the family. She had a tremendous say in how things went. It wasn't sort of like the proverbial, you know, Asian wife kind of cowering in the background. I mean, I don't know if that's true at all. But, you know, kind of what we would see in a cartoon, like, I, very, very, it seems to me, even from the memoirs of people like Glockel of Hamlin and people that wrote, Jewish women who wrote what their lives were about, it seems that they were fulfilled and happy and they had this awareness that people have different roles, but it doesn't make you better or worse. It just makes it a little bit different. And we need to know when we look at children and we look at people in our communities and in our families that you cannot look down on somebody or be disappointed in someone who you can see doesn't have an affinity for a particular thing. They weren't put in this world to do that. And it's very, very hard. It's very hard. Because I'm proud to live in a society where studying Torah at a high level is the ultimate thing that will gain you respect. That's wonderful. It's so much better than if making a lot of money is what's going to get you all the respect. It's wonderful. Spiritual achievement is what's appreciated. But then to say, well, it's all subjective. And no one could really know how someone else is growing and what their job is. means that you have to be very, very quiet about your prayers. You pray quietly. Chana taught us. This is completely between you and God. No one else gets to hear this, and you don't get to hear anyone else. What you're in this world to do is completely different than any other person. So there's Torah, and there's mitzvot, and there's the same words of the Shemona Esrei, and yet... Those are just the keys of the piano. You can make any music you, have, you, you want to. Everybody plays in the same instrument. And no one plays and composes the same two songs. No two people are the same. So Hannah comes and says, you've got to pray quietly. Because this is not about anyone else. And she says, Hashem, you're the Lord of hosts. You made everything. So I want a part of that too. I also need to be a part of everything. I need to be a little cog in that wheel. And I'll have my own job. And everything you gave me, everything you built, has its own job. And if there's a part of my body that's not being used, I want to know why not. My job is to make sure it does get used. It also means that if there's a part of your finances that's not being used, you've got to figure out how to use it. It means that if you have an extra piece of furniture, you've got to think of the best way to get rid of that that will make the best difference in the world. It means that anything that comes your way, you need to be as focused as you can on bringing the best out of that. If there's someone in your life and you can't figure out why they're in your life, think about it a little more. Maybe they really need to receive a smile from you. Maybe they need to receive a phone call from you occasionally asking how you're doing. There's a reason that these people are in your life. There's a reason that that mother was your mother or that sister or that grandchild was in your life and not in someone else's. And there's something that they need from you. And one of the things that I teach my students in Yerushalayim when they're going home for vacation to America, you know, they'll be going home for Pesach. A bunch of boys, you know, between 19 and, you know, 23. So one of the things I tell them besides for encouraging them to help take out the garbage and do the dishes is that... Uh, is that, <laughs> is that it's really important for them to recognize that their nieces and nephews will not have too many uncles. And that it doesn't matter if it's a niece and nephew even by marriage. 
you get married and your wife has a little niece and nephew. If you tell those kids what wonderful kids they are, and whenever you come visit them, you bring them a lollipop, and you're always warm to them and kind to them, they will come to you when they need something. They will look up to you, and they will want to spend time with you because they're yours, and no one else's. And if you have a niece or a nephew, you know, you got to send them a package in the mail sometimes. They need to know that I'm your uncle, so I love you. And if they know that they're there in your life, they're right there. No one else in the world can make the difference that you can just by being their uncle. And I know, as a kid, you know, there was no difference whether or not my, uh, my Auntie Phyllis or Uncle Irving, I didn't know which one was related by marriage and which one wasn't. They were my aunt and uncle, and they loved me, and I knew them. And uh, to this day, I don't feel, you know, my Uncle Irving is still, thank God, alive and well. And though my Aunt Phyllis uh, passed on, that's my Esther Fago was named for her as my mother's sister. And when I visit my Uncle Irving with the children, I mean, I just feel like he's exactly the same as had he been my mother's brother. There's no difference. And so the idea is, it's a strong idea I try to express, is that if you have things in your life that are there, they're on your plate, they're in front of you, they were put there for you to make a difference. Hard to know what it is. It's not always easy. And surely you cannot be focused on everyone outside your family if the major things that you're dealing with in life are not in place. In other words, you have sometimes the guy who uh, comes to show on Yom Kippur and he's a bank robber and he says, you know, I want to be better this year. I'm going to go to the mikveh every week before Shabbos. Yeah, that's a kind of a nice thing, but, you know, on the way to rob banks, you stop off at the mikveh. I mean, you have other things to be working on and, and in fact, it's distracting you from what you're doing. So obviously these things need to be balanced carefully. But that orientation, there's nothing in my life, there's not a physical part of my body that doesn't have a way to be used effectively. There's not a part of my psyche that can't be used effectively. There's not a person I know who I can't get closer to Hashem based on how I treat them. Not my mailman, not my gardener. There's something that I can be doing with all of these things, these uh, givens that Hashem gave me. So Korach, who said we're all equal, was in a way he was justified by Shmuel. He could see that Shmuel would come from him. In other words, he recognized that you don't have to be any brighter than anyone else to be just as great. And yet he mis misunderstood the reality that, you know, as, as much as that's true, we still need leaders and followers. Everyone has their own role. And so when Chana was able to come and pray and beg Hashem for an average child, I'll see my child's role. One person will say, I really want a child to be a Talmud Chacham. But another person will say, I really want to have a child who I can raise, who won't be built to be a Talmud Chacham, but rather he'll be built to be something else. That's also good. <coughs> it's important not to impose that on the kid. It's important to let them develop in a way they can really choose. They can really figure out where their neshama is. But if you discover that your child's neshama is to go off and become Hasidish, or to go off and become, you know, join a Svardi community, or go off and just look different than you, and dress different than you, and you know what, you know what, it's, uh, it's none of your business. You don't own your kids. It's a very important message. And so Chana recognized that it's possible to strive for greatness without wishing you had different abilities which is very hard. I often hear from people, you know, that woman is so special. If only I had her motivation, I could be like her. If only I had her drive. If only I had her calm, right? People have all kinds of things. That Rebbe, that Sadiq is so great. 
He just doesn't have a Yetzirah. I wish I could be like him. Very often, we compare someone with different abilities, and we realize that we're, we, we complain that we are not so great because we have different abilities. If only I was in the Baal Tshuva, then I wouldn't have wasted all those years, and then I could... It's such a terrible mistake. It's such a terrible mistake, and it's such a common one. It's almost impossible to be a human being and never feel that way. But it's also impossible to achieve great things if you can't overlook that and say, but despite that feeling that I have, I know it's not right. I know Hashem knew what He was doing when He placed me here and knew what He was doing when He gave me these people in my life. This parent and this spouse and this child and this friend, He knew what He was doing when He gave me all of these things. And that's the way that I'm going to be great. And Chana taught us that. That tefillah means to express yourself in a clear way that hits you. And this lehit palel is funny. It's a funny word. Because lilbosh is to wear something. And lilabesh is to dress someone else. Lehit labesh means to be dressed. To dress yourself. Anytime you have the word hit pael, the hit pael binyan is reflexive. Something happening to you. Lehit palel is to do something to yourself. So when Hashem prays, He speaks to Himself, so to speak. When we pray to Hashem, that is meant to be transformative of us. So when we ask Hashem for wealth and money, when we ask Hashem for health and long life and wisdom and intelligence and clear thinking, that is supposed that will itself transform us. If we get the message, Hashem, you're the one in charge here. we're the ones who wind up changing from that experience. And once we've changed, once we've brought out to the front the fact that we're grateful for these things, and we know that we're going to use these things well, then Hashem will give them to us. So Rabbi Tzadik says, often Hashem has a lot of good he's waiting to give somebody, but he's just waiting for them to pray. If you know somebody who really needs help, one of the greatest things you can do if they're open to it is just to pray with them a little bit. Just to hold their hand and sit with them and say, okay, we're going to read this piece of Tehillim together. We're going to sing this piece of Tehillim and we're going to ask Hashem, yeah, to give us the strength we need. My, my Aunt Phyllis, when she was suffering from cancer, she had a friend, Khani, who used to come with her and sit with her and pray. And it was very rewarding experience for her. I remember it was one of her favorite things. And I imagine there are many other people who would have done such a thing, but were worried that this will really hurt the person. They'll be offended that I say they have to pray. They'll be... I remember it being very rewarding. And so I, I, I say as follows. The fila, prayer, the last thing I want to express, which should help put all this in perspective, is how prayer, we're taught, is keneged korbanot. The avos taught us to pray. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who were people who lived only for Hashem. But, in fact, each prayer that we do today is because we don't have sacrifices anymore. And there was a sacrifice in the morning and one in the afternoon and in the evening they would offer other things. And so we pray three times a day because of the sacrifices. Shabbos, there was a Musaf offering, so we pray Musaf. Each prayer connects to one of the korbanos. So if that's true, if that's true, 
And the question needs to be asked. I mean, it almost would seem superficially that there's nothing more distant from a sacrifice than prayer. Sacrifice, Ramban explains, and everyone, it's very, very clear. The idea is tremendous humility to recognize I should be there in place of that animal. That blood that's being spilt is really something that needs to remind me that I don't deserve much. I've made mistakes. And really, if it was about what we deserved, I wouldn't be here. And I'm offering myself up in the form of this animal to help remind me to do tshuva and remind me to be humble. The person, before he brings a, a, a sin offering, he leans all of his weight on the animal. It's called smicha. And he leans on it as if the animal's going to take his place now. He support, the animal supports him fully. That if you pull the animal away, he'd fall down. And that animal now takes over his spiritual power in a way and gets slaughtered and he walks out clean and free of sin. Well, if that's true, and the Ramban writes about the Salat al-Khumish, so if that's true, what comparison does that have to a person who stands up in Shemona Esra and says, give me wisdom, give me strength, give me long life, give me Jerusalem, give me my family, give, listen to our prayers so that I can get everything I want, right? Then I add the list of everyone I know who's sick so that they can be better because I want them to be better. And we, how is that similar to a person coming in and saying, I don't deserve a thing? But the answer is when a person prays, he slaughters his ego. He says, I'm not the one who made all my money. And I'm not the one who has any control over whether somebody is sick or healthy. And I'm not the one who has any control over how smart I am. I could wake up in the morning tomorrow and not know a thing. I have no control over any of this. That humility and preparedness to say, Hashem, I know that it's because of you is what Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov taught us. That's what it means to be a monotheist and to be a Jew. It means to recognize in a humble way that the whole world was made by Hashem and He's running it and He knows just what's right. And if you can recognize that, you can actually get different things from Hashem than you were supposed to get before you started praying. If you can express clearly in your prayers why it's important for you to have this amount of money so you can do the following good things in the world, if you express it clearly and well, it's not, of course, that Hashem doesn't know. But that's you, in a clear way, identifying deeply with the things you believe in. And just as you remind your children, I love you, I love you, and you remind your spouse, you also remind yourself every time you say those things to your children and your spouse. The more that you tell your children and your spouse and your friends, I love you and I care for you, the more you reinforce in yourself that that's really true. Somebody's not excited about something. If they say, I'm so excited, it rubs off, it works. Advertising, where Victor Miller, I think, is the one who used to say, advertising works for everything. If you see signs that say, Coca-Cola's delicious, Coca-Cola's delicious, eventually you start to believe it. He says, so why can't you have a big sign up? I love Hashem. <laughs> if you see it enough, you'll start to believe it. If you say it enough, you'll start to identify with it. And so when we daven and we pray, we are deeply identifying with the awareness. We are not in charge. We're humble. Hashem's running the show. I'm not in charge. He built a whole world and everyone has their own role. Nobody else gets to hear what I'm praying because it's none of their business. Because it has no comparison. It may be the same words that we say, but believe it or not, there is no comparison between one prayer and another prayer. One person and another person. There's nothing, there's nothing similar about those things. Oh, they say the same words. Everyone in the shul is saying the same words. And you know what? Everybody in the shul also has to eat. 
and sleep and get married and live their lives. And no two lives are the same. No two people are the same. Every face looks different, the Gemara said. Every face looks different because every mind is different. Hashem built us to look very different, to remind us how incredibly different we are inside. And so we recognize that that's our job, tefillah, to take the message of Chana. Everything in our lives has a purpose. Everything in Hashem's world has a purpose. And that means that if I see in my life and my life experiences and my capabilities that I don't have the same capabilities as the next door neighbor, and maybe they don't seem as great to me. A Shmuel who the Chana begged for just an average child. That's when we learned about prayer. That's how we learned about what life is really about and how to relate to Hashem and ask Him for things. Is not to mind. Don't ask for other abilities. That's not it. Rather, you got to ask for the ability within exactly who you are and what you are given to totally turn all of that to the greatest thing. And that's the most important part, I believe, of 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 Chana's message. It pulls a Korach out of Gehenna. It shows that even a Korach brought something to the world. Even a Korach, even a bad guy, brought something to the world that if you look at it right, you can say, I'm so glad he was my grandparent. Because I was able to take from that something really good. And the Jewish people to this day pray with those messages. And we live with those messages. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.